0: You're listening to episode 44 of Pase Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocio Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast and subscribe to my newsletter, check this episode's notes. You can rate and leave a review for the show using your favorite podcast app. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Pasta Chipotle. This time, I bring you an interview which I recorded with Mexican expat Chef Fanny Gerson, who is a true culinary trailblazer and a successful business owner and author who champions the sweet side of Mexico's traditional flavors and recipes. Cultural diversity, you see, is at the very heart of Fanny's own family history. The rich Ukrainian and Jewish roots and traditions in many ways mirror the family-centered culture of Mexico, where she grew up. And much of her own identity as a chef came from, well, the clash, but also the eventual fusion and harmony of those proud and robust gastronomic traditions. Fanny was born and raised in Mexico City, but she relocated in the US where she trained at the Culinary Institute of America. And after graduating, she began a quest to find her own voice and passion in the culinary world. And after working in Michelin star restaurants, she co-founded Dough, a donut devoted artisan bakery with locations in Brooklyn and Manhattan. Doe was voted America's Best donut Shop in 2017 and was even featured in Paul Hollywood's TV show City Bakes. Some years later after founding Doe, Fanny opened La New Yorkina, which is an ice cream and ice lollies parlor that also offers catering services specialized in artisan frozen Mexican treats and sweets. After many years of hard work, Fanny has rightfully become a household name in America, one that is synonymous with Mexican desserts and confectionery. Her bestseller books and popular businesses are constantly featured on television, documentaries and news programs. And her delicious sweet recipes and other culinary creations have many times graced the pages of the New York Times, Savoir Magazine, Gourmet, the New York Magazine, the Food and Wine Magazine, as well as many specialized food blogs. Fanny was not only very generous with her time, but also very kind to open a very intimate side of her trajectory, her work and her path in becoming the businesswoman and author she is today. This was a truly unique opportunity to get up close and personal with one of Mexico's most acclaimed culinary ambassadors in the US. Fanny has built a very sweet empire with passion, resilience and enormous creativity. On this episode's notes, you will find links to all the things that are mentioned in this interview, including my reviews of Fanny's bestseller books. And without any further delay, with you, Chef Fanny Gerson. I hope you enjoy this episode. I really think Mexico's baking traditions, with its enormous pastry and breads repertoire, is grossly underrated, very little explored, and even quite a bit trivialized, at least by us Mexicans, since it's such an ubiquitous aspect of our diet. And the history of wheat and bread in Mexico has many unforeseen turns, like your own family history, Fanny, because wheat was introduced in Mexico by the hands of Spanish conquistadors, of course, and our baking traditions were heavily influenced, obviously, by Spain's own bread culture, then Jewish, French, Austrian, and even English patisserie traditions that together created a whole new baking identity, now, you, Fanny, added several extra layers of cross cultural pollination to create dough, your incredibly popular donut bakery chain. Take us into the history of dough and the process that creates the uniqueness of your doughs and the rainbow of flavors that celebrate so much of Mexico's incredibly sweet tooth.
1: So Doe was founded in 2010. My partner, and he's from southern France, and he was the one who had the idea. He had a storefront that he needed to occupy. And he had the idea to do this gourmet donut shop. There was only one, really, in New York at the time. But it was across the street from public housing, so it wasn't the most obvious place to open a concept like that. This is very strange. We have a Frenchman and a Mexican making something very quintessential American. But I thought, yeah, why not? We had grown up with donuts. So we talked a lot about the texture, the flavors, but really about the dough itself. And that's where the name came from. So I did a lot of experimenting for many months just to try to get the consistency of the dough. We wanted to make sure we had something that even if you eat, uh, as we call naked, that it would be great. Once we finalized and we were both happy with the dough, it came time to do the glazing. Like that's where the story comes in. But it wasn't necessarily French or American or Mexican, but it was sort of like the influences that I've had through my life that inspired the flavors. So, of course, we needed to have a chocolate plain glazed. But when I was creating them, this was in December and I was craving Agua de Jamaica. So hibiscus water, you know, that sweetened water. There was a shop nearby that sold Mexican items. So I got some and as I was steeping the hibiscus, I thought, what if I turn this into a glaze? So that was one of the first signature flavors. And then other things that are very sort of tropical passion fruit. And there's a chocolate chipotle, you know, that's a seasonal one. It really has evolved. But you do feel sort of an influence from different parts of the world.
0: Mexican cuisine, I mean, you won't let me lie, really has been learning to negotiate cross-pollination. And I just think it's amazing uh, what you've achieved then, because what yeah could have potentially been a big clash became what it should, an amazing result. So how did you negotiate? Like the creative process must have been insane. Why don't you uh, tell us something more about that?
1: For me, the creative is the part that comes more easily. I don't try to think about what others are going to think about. Perhaps it's a blessing in disguise. (laughs) And at the end of the day, it's about making people happy. So I do things that make me happy. And there's a lot of layers that go into the purpose of how I make things and why I make things. So, for example, if I choose to buy produce locally, it's to support small growers. That's that's meaningful to me. But maybe to the end consumer, they just want it to taste good. But if I get to share, on top of all of that, part of my culture, so the donut. Is a vehicle where they can experience something that takes them somewhere they've never known, and then that starts a conversation, and then that that becomes like a bridge, and not an invasion of a culture.
0: You said it beautifully. As an owner, you're looking after the whole chain of sourcing all the ingredients, and you know taking care of that. I'd say you know physical part, but as you very well said, you know this other aspect of. The cultural and gastronomic value you are creating with your products, and that's ultimately what people are buying into. And that is not me saying it, that is your own accolades, very well earned, being voted, you know, the best donut in America. How did that sink in then with uh, the whole vision?
1: It was very surreal. And when partner Thierry and I started, we didn't start out with a vision of where we wanted it to be. It was like, let's have fun with this. It was very surprising in a very great way. As it's grown, it, it's of course, has its challenges. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And uh, I can tell you we've been very flattered.
0: <laughs> mm, I can imagine. Well, that takes me to something I heard you saying In an interview, when you were talking about food and the aspect of collective memory, you know, it's something very important in in intangible traditions like food, absolutely essential for the survival of it. In that interview, you were talking about that, and how, in your own books, and specifically in La New Yorkina, which now you are moving to your other enterprise, you face that challenge of trying to harvest all these ubiquitous, you know, knowledge about ice creams and sorbets that everybody knows and enjoys, but no one stops to question, oh wait, where do we get these recipes? I would like you to walk us through the process that you followed, well, first drafting the idea in your head and then gathering and curating the recipes for your your several books, you know, that Uh, came before and after uh, La New Yorkina's menu. And how did you map out the many regional varieties of ice creams that are in in Mexico and and how they differ from each other? But how was this whole
1: experience? Uh, That's a very good question. So when I had the opportunity and then came the research part, it was very overwhelming because it was like, how how do I begin? And my father studied anthropology and he, he used to be a teacher. He actually taught methods of investigation. To me, it's like food anthropology. The first thing I wrote down index cards with every state in Mexico, right? So I would write stuff that I would know or that I had done research for. I tried to find out if there was some kind of special date um, where there was some kind of celebration tied into a suite or something like that. It gave me a starting point. I would try to set up interviews. I don't know if you encountered this. Would contact people and from far away and, you know, how to get them to trust you. Because people are very uh, protective and jealous Mm -hmm. of their recipes. Because that's like the biggest heritage that they have. And they don't want to just share it with anyone. And I would try to explain that it was about documenting to try to give continuity. That's the biggest challenge even now. That's sort of how I started. But I found three very important resources in every place that I went. So once I would go to a state, I would go to the markets and talk to vendors and people buying there. And Mm -hmm. the last is uh, taxi drivers. Some of the best stories that I was able to experience and learn about were through Things that were not researched or planned. Like I had a friend that had a hotel in a place called Bacalar. And it turns out that the wife of the nightkeeper of the hotel was a candy maker. And she made these amazing meringues on top of a, a trash can. Got to see how she made them, how she made a living. I think it's just having like perseverance and patience, you know, open eyes, open mind, open heart. That's definitely challenging. I have a bit of, at least a little bit of credibility where I can show something. And so that with the knowledge that I've acquired through experience, I put it all together. So this is an interpretation to capture the essence. But when I was writing the the books, there are certain recipes that I had to kind of fight for to keep in the book. Because, you know, they want people to be able to recreate them at home, and I do as well. But sometimes certain things, specifically fruits, are very difficult to find outside of Mexico. But I cannot have a book about Mexican ice cream and not include something like mamé fruit. So even if it's rare to find it, you have to include it. So there's always like a lot of uh, sort of balancing (laughs) <laughs> in, in, in between. And then in terms of the different kinds of ice cream, Mexican food is certainly very regional. The sweets have a much longer way to go. There's been a lot more written and researched about savory side, but also the names. So for example, I grew up in Mexico City and in Mexico City, nieve refers to sorbets and helado refers to ice cream. But there are some regions that call helado something that is made in a machine and not by hand. And other people call helado if it has cream and not milk. Even writing about that was very confusing. (laughs) I was corrected along the way many times. Let me
0: try and unpack uh, a little bit of all the things you just mentioned, because all of them are equally important. And many people outside Mexico might not know that we have a very, a very famous, but also like a very rich tradition of uh, cultural and sociological and anthropological studies specifically aimed to understand and help us discern the very complex relationships between uh, cultural groups, indigenous, mestizo, mixed heritage, urban groups. So that, that is always something very useful when it comes to You know, try and read uh, the product of some cultural manifestation, which in this case is food. Yes, like you, I also encountered all sorts of responses when it came to having people sharing uh, their knowledge. It was a very humbling experience, and and I'm sure it was for you the same. You you really have to build a personal connection, and you have to have the utmost respect for the people. And like you said, you know, is their livelihood is the whole. You know, legacy from their families because they're honoring their family traditions and their own, you know, life experiences. And I know writing a book is, uh, you know, like, like releasing a balloon in the air and you seldom get feedback. You did work with a publishing house. I mean, I guess would I have more accents to get some feedback? What was, the, what was it, if there was any?
1: I think it's been a great process. I first sort of reached out to a friend's agent and I told her originally my idea for my first book was about confections, just candies. He told me she was not going to represent me for that. Nobody was going to publish that. If you go to a bookstore and you look at the confection section, it's so small. He said, try to find a way to broaden, to bring more people in, start a conversation. You know, so there's an amazing bookstore here called Kitchen Arts and Letters, and I was talking to one of the the guys working there who's now one of the owners and i told him i said well what if i did something that had some authentic recipes but maybe had something like a devil's food cake. And I put some kind of ancho chili, you know, kind of like to just introduce the flavors. He said, no, don't do that. A book is meant to transport you. And he talked about how people look at books, but most of the people will look at the front, sometimes the back, then they flip through pages, but then they open in the middle, you know, like in different sections. I mean, very few people like actually sit and, you know, continue to read it like page by page. So he says, when you open that book, it should transport you to wherever you want to be transported. So if you take them to, let's say, that idea of the devil's food cake, they're going to take the devil's food cake that they know, and maybe they're going to try the chili. But that's not really what you're trying to do. Uh, I was with, with my friend, the one that introduced me to my now agent, and would make, he was making dinner, and all of a sudden it hit me what the book had to be, My Sweet Mexico. I excused myself, and they were like, I'm literally cooking dinner for you <laughs> I said I'm sorry I know I'm being really rude I never felt anything like that before and I said I, ju- I just need to spit these words out and I wrote down the proposal but at the time I didn't have a business I didn't have a voice I didn't have you know nothing my agent said okay I'm gonna read it we're gonna see each other and she had to see that I had some kind of an okay skill as a writer so when I saw her she said she was pleasantly surprised we shopped it around she she said, don't hold your breath, you're, you're nobody, you know, you, you have a great idea that nobody has done. We had a lot of rejection letters, but I went home that night and I looked at my books in a very different way that i never had before. And I looked at who published them, houses that would understand what I was trying to do. And then one day I got a call that one of these wanted the book. I I couldn't believe it. And and I had a, a fantastic editor that really respected what I was trying to do, but also pushed me. I have been very fortunate to have that 10 Speed Press has given me a lot of feedback and also freedom so so yeah that sorry that was a very long answer to your question
0: (laughs) that's exactly what i wanted to know
1: you know uh,
0: share the what it goes into the craft of of making books happen so thank you very much for that you for a number of years have run some special events to celebrate both Hanukkah and Rosh Hashanah. You've done so on your own in certain occasions and in others together with other Jewish chefs and immigrants, among them Patekhinich, uh, whom some you know might not be aware that she is Mexican, but also descendant of a family of Polish Jewish immigrants. And there are articles actually about that, and I'm going to put them on uh, this uh, episode's description. Ultimately, I think that the food we prepare tells a story, whether it's one we want to honor, a story we want to rewrite, or a story we want to create. And, you know, the underlying narrative of the food you specifically create, I personally think, you will tell me, uh, comes from, you know, reclaiming both of your cultural heritage uh, sources, like the Jewish and the Mexican and you accommodate that now in your own life as an expat. Both of these culinary traditions share so many commonalities such as being heavily centered around conviviality you know the jewish and mexican traditions also have a very deep sense of spirituality embedded in in these family events your events started weaving into this hybrid community the community you belong now so how did the idea of these events come together and what's the response you've had from from that community what can you tell us
1: um, well, you know, Patti and I are, are friends, you know, we didn't grow up in Jewish schools or very involved in the Jewish community. You know, the, the, the fact that we're both Mexican and Jewish is not very common. For me, being away from home, I always say is what brought me closer to it in a way. I've always loved traditions and we certainly did like the big traditions. When I first moved here, I had nowhere to go. So then I said, well, I'm going to start, you know, to develop them. And then I would call my grandmother and my aunt to try to get the recipes. You know, my grandmother didn't love to cook, but my great grandmother did. And then they had a cook in the house that learned how to make everything. And every time I would call, she would give me a different amount. And I was like, she's being like very protective of my My grandmother's recipe, my great grandmother passed away when I was very little, but I always felt a very strong connection with her. So anytime I started doing something, you know, very Jewish or for these for these festivities, I always imagined and still do and feel her close to me, as though she was guiding me. And maybe it's my imagination. Maybe it's not really there. But I really feel like it's if I'm making the, you know, the matzo balls that she would tell me, no, you know, press them this way, press them that way, because I didn't have that. And I think it's in a very organic way of how I've gotten to share these things. That's how these Dinners or events have come about, and they've inspired, you know, a lot of the things uh, that I do. Uh, Both come from very rich histories, and the commonality lies in the it's about bringing people together, and food is a vehicle to to do that. That my own cultural blend,
0: I can totally relate to that. Uh, You know, the idea of what I do now started while not being in Mexico. Plus, I want to say a personal note about that. My granddad, uh, from my dad's side, passed away when I was not even seven years old. I remember like everything we did together. And one of the things he did uh, most of the time for my brother and myself was making ice creams for us. (laughs) So when I stumbled upon your account, however many years ago, I was like, oh, personally, it made me feel closer to my own family and my granddad. So thank you for that, honey. You know, I will will let you uh, walk us through the specific details about the ways uh, in which Mexican ice cream is created ingredients and what makes Mexican helados and your own method of confections
1: so special. So go on. The most uh, traditional kind of ice cream or sorbet is called nieve de garrafa and that's a hand paddled ice cream not churned, but paddled. So basically, it's a wooden barrel and a metal cylinder. And in between, there's uh, layers of ice and salt. They get a huge block of ice that they chip away, and then they put the mixture inside. They sort of turn the cylinder, and that's the garrafa, till the edges start to freeze. Then with the paddle, they scrape the sides, and then they continue doing this until it starts to thicken. So that's the most traditional way. You know, now there are companies that sell commercial base that ends up being cheaper because traditionally they're made with uh, raw milk and they have very interesting names. One time I saw even Viagra ice cream. Chicharron, shrimp, lettuce, you know, those are more, I think, a way to lure customers in. (laughs) Then there's like kiss of an angel, you know, things that are very playful. So I think that's also very unique to Mexico. So originally I wanted to do a store with just Nieves de Garrafa. But then I have to deal with sort of laws and regulations of how to make ice cream in New York but I think that the essence of it, people can relate to it. There's definitely a factor of nostalgia, traditional to me.
0: (laughs) You know, the notion of tradition and authenticity uh, is something I talk about recurrently in in the podcast. You know, food being an intangible cultural product is bound to morph, adapt. So by definition... It has to change. And of course, I celebrate the fact that you make everything and then the impossible things to bring these flavors to one of the most culturally diverse cities in the whole world, that is New York. I recently saw that you are introducing some uh, new flavors. Am I right? Is that corn?
1: Corn, yes. I was so excited because most of the corn I find in the States is sweet corn, which is great, but it just tastes different than the white corn. And the farmer said, but they're not as sweet as, you know, I said, no, no, that's exactly what I want. (laughs) So we're going to be making pan de lote, you know, that you can get with a scoop of ice cream or by itself, warmed up. And then we're going to make corn ice cream and corn paletas. Not not a common ice cream flavor, but for me, that was a surprise because (laughs) I grew up with it. I think it's a constant
0: exercise when we are outside of our country of origin you know you might have customers that come for the first time so you have to be constantly reintroducing Mexico's culinary traditions which takes me then to the next question which is you are now pretty much a household name in America you know the to-go authority on sweets and confectionery how was the process for you to evolve as an author from book to book how has that worked for you
1: Well first thank you for the praises. So for me it's been you know very surprising and humbling and exciting but it comes to me with a big responsibility. And there's certain opportunities of things where I get to talk, work with someone. And to me, that's amazing because it opens up new possibilities to share. For me, the big thing is to share the sweetness of Mexico. That's a big purpose of my life. But even if we have them at the store, I don't think people, they don't often realize that the same person did everything, you know? So I need to do a better job at that, I will say. But I have gotten to, to meet so many interesting people and to share, you know, change the conversation from just uh, negativity in Mexico to something positive. The cultural aspect is being not just ignored, but trying to be buried in both countries, in my point of view. And I think it's, it impulses you more to celebrate.
0: It. I could not agree more. You know what? Giving you a hard tip, I try to keep this podcast very kosher. I'm happy about not having everybody agreeing with me. And at the same time, I'm like, well, you know, my topic is about food and culture, but then you can't separate, you know, one thing from the other. And creative manifestations of culture, like food, play the best role of culinary ambassadors. Absolutely agree with you. Okay, well... Almost closing the interview. Many people who follow you, or many people who follow your husband, might not be aware that you two are a power couple of the food scene in New York. Your husband, Daniel Ortiz is also a man of many many talents, like you, who shares your passion for food and co-owns the famous Mexican restaurant Casa Pública in Brooklyn. Since together the two of you own three successful food businesses, meaning New Yorkina Casa Pública and Doe, I won't shy away, like I said, to call you a rising gastronomic power couple, because whether you realize it or not, people especially aspiring young chefs and, uh, you know, by large, the Latino community, really look up to you. So, I mean, I think it's natural that transitioning from being an employee to being a business owner requires much personal and professional growth, a long string of failures and setbacks, as it's normal, from which we often find ourselves deeply unprepared, just in the same way we are not taught to cope with success so i would love it if you could share some aspects of how do you handle all this and the skills that you as a couple and uh, you yourself have developed to get you where you are now you know which have been the most important life and business lessons that you've learned so far and how the whole transition has uh, made you grow well, you
1: bring out some very important points. And actually, it's funny <laughs> you say that because we had a very difficult winter. We're still trying to figure out how to bridge the gap of the seasonality. Still, most people think of us for the summer treats, and that just takes time. Something else happened. And then I said, I should have a blog. It should be called The Successful Life of an Entrepreneur because I think everybody on the outside always sees certain things. And it's not that we don't want to share you know, what happens behind the scenes. You're often just dealing with it. Real life and real struggle, uh, I don't think it gets talked about often. Uh, people that, like couples that work together, it either works great or it doesn't. I don't think there's a lot in between. He's my accomplice. Just sometimes you disagree with how to get there, but we both have each other's backs. But, but also don't be afraid to reach out for help, your peers and your family and your friends. So I think those are things that I continue to remind myself of. And I feel extremely lucky to have somebody like Danny by my side. I'm thinking of the big picture. If I think in a small way, it makes no sense how I work, what I do. You know, like we say in Mexico, sometimes you have cows that are skinny and sometimes you have cows that are very fat. <laughs> no, I agree
0: with you. There's there's much more uh, at stake, I would say. Uh, but, I mean, when I, I was doing my research about you two guys and uh, preparing for this interview, and I, when I realized that you were running all these businesses together was like these guys are ninjas probably the most uh, important element of all these is resilience and trust and be 100 percent supportive and true to your beliefs to disagree and to agree i think i mean i seldom share things about my own personal life on the show because it's about the food and about the guests but uh we Put forward like you guys I think our mutual personal passions and as a couple to champion each other's work and I think that's the only way forward. Well uh, Fanny I, I could talk to you for days on end but I know you're very busy and I want to thank you so much for your time for opening up for this very intimate honest and absolutely gorgeous conversation and just before uh, we say our goodbyes, I want to um, ask you, what are the plans for you ahead? I mean, we're in the summer now, but uh, you know, in the, in the near foreseeable future, what are your plans for your businesses and uh, for you to, to look ahead, I don't know, three, four, five years, however. Uh, what, what's, what's your agenda filled with?
1: Uh, One of the big things I want to do, which I've been wanting to do for a number of years, is to focus on like a lot of confections for La shipping nationwide. And uh, we're also uh, looking to expand. So we were able to get into a pilot program, having our freezers of paletas uh, in Whole Foods, see how we can expand. So that would be huge for us. And finishing my proposal for the next book. I love teaching, so I want to teach more, and you know, always trying to change and improve things, and and in the the day to day, that's it. <laughs> No, I'm very excited already.
0: Fanny, thank you so much for sharing, uh, you know, I guess a little explorer of culinary crossovers. You know, a perfect excuse to have deeper conversations. Let the audience know how can they contact you, how can they find your social media accounts. So please go ahead.
1: So first, thank you for uh, reaching out and taking the time. The biggest platform I use is La New Yorkina, LA, New York, spelled out I-N-A. My uh, personal one is Fanny Gerson, F-A-N-Y-G-E-R-S-O-N. I'm going to do a little plug-in for my husband's restaurant. It's really amazing. It's called Casa Pública. And congratulations on your book. I'm looking forward to, to reading it as well.
0: Thank you. Fanny, muchisimas gracias. There you have it. Fanny Gerson, the amazing paleta and ice cream and donut wizard. Follow her on every channel and follow her on her next adventures. Thank you, Fanny, for being on Pasa Chipotle podcast.
1: Gracias. Bye.
0: Visiting a Mexican market is like stepping into a universe of vibrant colors, smells, foods, and traditions. They are the beating heart of our communities and the nation's culinary powerhouses. And my new book celebrates these prodigious places and their delicious food. Mexican Market Food is a book for anyone who enjoys the warmth of chiles and the addictive taste of guacamole, but also wants to enter a new dimension of Mexican food, one that will take you straight into the history and present of one of the world's most celebrated cuisines. As a passionate food history writer, cook, and storyteller, I take you on a life-changing journey and celebrate together the magic and food of Mexico's markets with dozens of delicious traditional recipes that will bring you closer to the real Mexico by discovering the stories and flavors all in a single proverbial basket. Go to pastechipotle.com forward slash book and get your copy of Mexican Market Food. And let's celebrate together the joy of traditional Mexican cooking. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. Check this episode's notes on your podcast app or web browser to find all the links mentioned on today's interview, such as the links to follow and connect with Fanny. And if you want to see extra material, videos, and links to Fanny's favorite recipes, go to passthechipotle.com to read the special blog post of this episode. You can also enjoy extra material on Pass YouTube channel. To connect with me on social media, find the links on this episode's notes, or drop me a line to hello at In the next episode, I will continue with a series about the culinary regions of Mexico, and this time is the turn of the Pacific Northwest coast of the nation, including, among other states, Sonora, Sinaloa, and Nayarit. Other episodes about these culinary regions include the Central High Plains, Southeast and the Peninsula of Yucatan, and Huasteca. And you can listen to them on your favorite podcast app or enjoy the visual version on Pase Chipotle Podcast's YouTube channel. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. Until the next time.